history. We come to God's word because God has declared to us things that beyond what we could ask or imagine, things of redemption, things of salvation, things of eternal life, uh, things of love. This is all in God's word for us, and we pray that as it is in God's word for you today, that your hearts would be encouraged, your hearts would be strengthened, you'd be drawn to repentance and faith uh, through the word of God, working through the spirit of God inside your lives. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so uh, if as you get your Bibles out, please turn there. Just encourage you to uh, have a, a paper Bible in front of you. If, if you can't do that, to have a, to have a um, you know, user on your phone or whatever. We do have paper Bibles available out in the foyer, though, as well, uh, for you to circle or keep, you know, circle the verses, underline, write, take notes in the margin, all those things which are all part of our listening and responding to the Word of God. Uh, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Stand as you are able. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading of it. Would you pray? Would you, as you're seated, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you struck, and, and we've been struck many times by these verses. If we've read them and if we're familiar with them, uh, God, a powerful testimony of love. And God, we just ask as we reflect on them, think about this. God, that you would form us in a people of love. Father, show us where change is needed, where faith is necessary. God, where Christ would be sufficient for us. Show us all these things in your word. Would the Holy Spirit be our teacher? Through your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an old proverb when it comes to building things and construction, and the proverb is this, it's measure twice and cut once, right? If you've ever uh, forgotten to do that second measurement, uh, what you realize is that piece of lumber that's there is now a scrap uh, just to be used for something else or maybe thrown away. And with the price of lumber these days, you know that's an especially expensive mistake to make. I've been uh, working on a rail, just fixing a rail in my front porch, and I have a few um, lessons learned about this very thing uh, sitting on my porch as I wait to get this thing done. 
Remember, measure twice, cut once. And because it is important for us to measure rightly if we are going to get the right result. Uh, before I was a pastor, I was an engineer, and we launched satellites in the air and, and put them into orbit um, and made them functional at the time. And, and when I was doing that, there was a number of satellites which were being launched uh, from our country, and they would be launched, but they would end up in the wrong orbit. And some of the discoveries afterwards and figuring out why they went to the wrong orbit were that they were using feet and miles instead of meters and kilometers, the wrong system of uh, the, the wrong system of measurement in order to get there. And so now what's there but space junk, which is orbiting around our, our planet. Hundreds of millions of dollars of space junk up, up, up in the air. That's because the way that we measure matters. And it's important that we measure ourselves rightly. It's, it's important that we measure ourselves at all, but measure ourselves rightly. And that's what brings uh, us into our passage today. Um, we've been learning the story of the Corinthians, and it's, it's been an interesting story. I, you know, we kind of keep hitting problem after problem after problem as we go through, but it really gives a picture, kind of a story of what's going on inside of them, doesn't it? Um, in this case, what we see is the Church of Corinth was measuring themselves with this wrong measurement. They were measuring themselves by their excitement. They were measuring themselves by emotion. They were measuring themselves by these miraculous manifestations among them of spiritual gifts. And, and this passage here is written to us, written to them, to show that they were using the wrong measurement. They were not using the most important one, the one that they could use, one that they should use, and that was the measurement of love. And because they were using this wrong measurement, um, they had all kinds of problems inside the church. We've seen division. We've seen conflict. We see uh, the marginalization of, of some groups, the, the disregard of the poor among them. And there was competition inside the church. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter uh, to address those things and correct them for their lack of love. It's, it's not hard for us to, to use the wrong measurement inside of our lives, especially if we're using it to measure our own goodness. Uh, we can measure it in our sense of being right. We can measure it in our superiority over others. We can measure it through our experiences rather than uh, the Word of God, but disregarding the experiences of others. We may base our relationships off of wrong measurements. It, it happens all the time inside of our world. Uh, our world is reinforcing to us that love consists merely of feelings. Maybe that romantic love relationship or even the feelings inside of marriage. And likewise, we may base um, our experience of God's love on those same feelings. And where we, we can even wonder our own place with God based on how we feel rather than on the promises of God's word. You know, basing anything on feelings is the wrong measurement to use. As we see, it's based on love, a objective sense of love as well. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is a really well-known passage. So if you know your Bible, you've probably seen it before. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful. Um, you know, it's just unmeasured in its, and, and, and incomparable uh, in its statement of what love is and its description of love. And it's really providential that it would come up on Mother's Day, right? Um, that on Mother's Day we'd be looking at this, this passage. It just happened to happen that way. I don't plan these things out like this, but here we are. And uh, it's providential in this sense that for many of us, that our mother is the most loving person that we know. Uh, the, the nourishing care of a mother, her care, uh, the way that she sought our good. I mean, those things have given us such a 
picture of love, that it brings a smile to our face and, and it elicits at least a phone call on this day, if not more, or flowers from your, from your children from up front at church. Um, but even that human love, as, as wonderful as it may be, it's a picture of the more profound love of God. In this passage, God reminds us what matters most. He reminds us of this love, and he shows us his value. And he's reminding us of the fact that love is our goal. We need to know how to measure it. No matter how well uh, known this passage is, we need to remember that this passage is not given to us as a sentimental, drippy sort of passage uh, that we feel good after we read it or we make sure we include it in our Mother's Day card. Um, It's given to us in order to live out. In fact, if we really look at it, it would show us how far short of God's standard of love that we fall. First uh, John 4.8 shows us the source of love and it shows us the ultimate standard. First John 4.8 says that God is love. Love is found in God himself. He is the only perfect love that exists inside of the universe. You know, the scripture reminds us that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And if there is one way that we have fallen short of his glory, would it not be the way that we love? Scripture says, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And it's talking about a perfection in his love. And in our failure to love, uh, we should see our failure before God. We would see our sin even before God. How is sin seen better than in our lack of love? And so instead of seeing the passage as reaffirming something that we're doing, uh, we need to see it as a confrontation in part of how far we fall short of God's glory. Love's a law. We've failed to uphold it. We look to it and we cry out to God for forgiveness, for mercy, for grace, to do things that are impossible in us, but are thoroughly possible for him because, remember, God is love. And gratefully, Love is something that God pours out into us, and God pours out through us. God does that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love is the goal, so we want to look at its value um, today. We want to look at three things in our passage. The first thing we want to see, especially in verses 1 through 3, is the indispensability of love. Now, this is a letter, and it has a context to it. And in this particular letter, he is addressing, the author, the Apostle Paul, is writing about the unloving attitudes of the Corinthian church with regard to spiritual gifts and with regard to something called speaking in tongues. This, these gifts and the speaking in tongues was such a, a focus in the church that it was creating chaos inside the congregation, and it was creating this sort of spiritual elitism, which was separating people. They were using these gifts uh, not to... Uh, help others, but ultimately to draw a spotlight to themselves, to set up this like spiritual hierarchy, almost like a, a spiritual American idol, uh, claiming the spotlight on themselves no matter uh, how it helps or hurts others. And so this letter is written uh, to show that no matter how much our abilities may dazzle others, however much they may uh, bring about powerful emotions, or however um, they may show the power of God, what really matters is love. Love is critical for the body of Christ to function correctly. Now, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at spiritual gifts, and you may have wondered over this time, well, what is my gift? Some people even get anxious about that. What what is my gift, and how do I know if I'm using it, and those things? And and if anything, that chapter 13 should come as a relief to you. 
Uh, while the question of what gifts do we have is not irrelevant, it's not really the most important question. He gets to the most important question here. Again, remember, love is the goal. And the question for us is, are you actively loving people? And are you using the things that you have that God has given to you in a loving way? We would say the fruit of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit produces in us, and love and joy and peace and patience, are more important than the gifts of the Spirit. Because certain gifts can be used in unloving and uncaring ways. Galatians 5.22 says love and peace and patience are, are the most important things. That's the fruit of the Spirit of God. Those are the things that he builds in us, and those are the things that please God. So we're not to be anxious in what our gifts are, but instead we're to be diligent in our love. That leads us into verse 1. Because in verse 1, uh, we see that without love, even our greatest actions accomplish nothing. We might think that we do great deeds in order to, to accomplish great things. But without love, he says it's nothing. If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gang, gong or a clanging cymbal. Notice the Apostle Paul here says that he speaks in tongues. He's speaking of himself as he writes these things down. But his point is, is that even though he has this gift of whatever that is, um, if there is no uh, love with it, it is a worthless noise. He even uh, taps into some of the culture in Corinth at this place. Corinth, the city in Greece, was known for its production in brass. They had techniques for producing brass instruments and brass um, goods. And Paul uses this production to make a point. He shows that anyone who speaks in tongues is amazing as he is, but does it without love is just a thundering noise. It's chaos. It's the instruments that are played without any musical quality. It's, it's that brand new drummer who's banging the drums and the cymbals in the basement um, without um, having learned anything yet. Instead of creating this aesthetic which draws us in, it is a, it is a sound which repulses and drives away. And some people, they like to impress others. He's talking about this here. The point is that with this impressing, this razzle and dazzle, with, but if it's done without love, it doesn't accomplish anything. Do you think that you will be able to change the world because of your great intelligence, because of a great ability to speak, because of your vision for the future? Do you think that your skills will make a better church or you're just adding so much good inside of your marriage? The Apostle Paul reminds us that none of this means anything if we don't have love. Don't trust in those to accomplish things without love being part of it. Don't be more proud of being right than of being loving. Now, if he jumps down to verse 2, he moves on from what um, actions without love fail to accomplish. Now he shows that certain things without love fail to even give us an identity that we might be wanting. He's talking about identity here. If he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Talking about identity, I am nothing. And, and sometimes we want to get our identity from the great things that we accomplish, the great things that we do, the attention that is drawn to us, the positions that we hold. But the Apostle Paul here shows the smallness of that vision and the littleness of the character that goes into that desire. If we think that um, what we do or, or um, we have is, is something without love, and he points this, this far better vision for us, a vision that a better identity is found when we are marked as people of love. Even think about it, that God has marked himself by his love. God is love. He's identified himself in that way. We might be trying to make a, a name for ourselves in front of our friends, 
in the world, but what really matters is if we're something in the eyes of God. And what is it that marks us out for that? But love. Look at verse 3. Not only does he say that uh, actions without love accomplish nothing, that they fail to give an identity that we might want, but what he says is we actually gain nothing by, uh, by actions without love. He says, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, but gain nothing. I mean, he's gone to these extreme measures here, right? Giving away everything, even dying as a martyr, because some may hope by, by doing either of these things uh, that they will gain something from God that they will gain the respect of the people around them. And Paul shows it doesn't work like that. Motivation matters. You may know people have done great, you know, have, have done significant actions, but in very unloving ways. And you can have the sense of, well, thanks, but I don't know if you needed to do that because I feel worse having gotten it than I would have if I wouldn't have gotten to begin with. Now, maybe we want a reward that comes from God, and we try to do it by good things, and we think that if we just do the right things, if we check the right boxes, uh, well, then the God has to approve us and reward us, right? Here we see not even the greatest of actions where God is obligated to reward. God rewards those who serve him by love. Without heart of love for a neighbor and for him, it, it, it doesn't accomplish any gain. And so right here from the start, these first three verses, we see this indispensability of love. So no matter how much we think we're doing, no matter how important that we think we are, and no matter what we think that we deserve from, from God or from others, without love, it's not going to happen. It's empty hopes. The person who acts without love does not have the pleasure of God. All right, so he moves from this indispensability, what we need it, to show the qualities of what love looks like. We see that in verses 4 through 7. It's helpful because we want to be able to recognize what love is when we, when we see it. Now, before we look at the list of things that are there, I want to point out a couple things. Uh, the first thing, you know, I want to point out that it doesn't give us a definition of love. It does a beautiful job of describing what love is, but uh, it, it, it doesn't define it. If you were to ask people, how would you define love, you'd probably get a myriad of different answers. Those myriad of different answers would probably come after a really confused look and a struggling thought over what it would be. I mean, our world kind of defines love by emotions, defines love by sex, things like that. One man was asked that, and he thought deeply about it, and he said, love, love is, is a feeling you feel when you have a feeling you've never felt before. Right? Love is a feeling you feel when you have a feeling you never felt before. You know, so you can see uh, how uh, maybe some people you know would give that sort of an answer. But that leads to our second observation. If you look at the passages, these, these are verbs. You know, these are actions. These are not just adjectives describing love, but really he uses action words to describe what love looks like. They're habits. These, regular, these are regular behaviors that we do to love people or that sometimes we might do when we don't love people. This way we see that love is dynamic. Love actually does things. You know, our love is, is seen by what we do and what we don't do. And we remember that the, the love the Bible calls to us is not merely a feeling or an emotion, as the world emphasizes, but is primarily seen in the way that we behave towards others. I mean, that simple truth might save a marriage, of realizing that it is an action that we take. Now, my favorite definition of love uh, comes from John Piper when he, he says that love is the pursuit of, of, of our joy and the joy of someone else in Jesus Christ. You know, love leads me to seek your joy in the Lord. 
Our moms want us to be happy. Christian love is defined, we want others to be happy in Christ Jesus because we know that's where true happiness is found. True joy is found only in him. Another author says that love is giving to another what they need from what you have because God wants you to. We see others in need. We see what we have to give. We know God wants us to give, and so we do. Love pursues that good of others. Love meets need. needs. Love is others-centered. True love is grounded in God's word then because that's what Jesus Christ did for us. All right, so love is seen in what we give and not in how others make us feel. And so verses 4 through 7 show us these things. We see a total of 15 qualities of love, and we want to work through these things. I only had, I said 14 last service, but I was wrong. So if you hear it both, it is 15 qualities of love, not 14. So let's work through some of them. Or actually, let's work through all of them. Uh, starting in verse 4, we see the first one, that love is patient. When we're seeking the good of another person, when we're truly loving them, we are willing to do whatever it takes, however long it takes for the people that we love. Much is made of the idea that this word can be translated long-suffering because it will likely include some degree of suffering, uh, something we didn't expect at the beginning, but we'll walk with people along in this way. It may be especially true on Mother's Day. Uh, many of us have children who have walked away from our family. They've walked away from the Lord, and our hearts are just grieved about that. And yet, love is still there. We, we pray, we hope um, that they will return to what is good. There's, there's a, a long-suffering and a patience which we're called to at those times. The second quality is, is love is kind. It means that we care for others in practical ways. It, it seeks the, joys of the, the joy of others by taking care of practical needs, doing things that help out a person. Maybe to help them see they're in God's image. Maybe to help to ease a burden inside of life. To help see who they are in Jesus Christ and salvation. See how they can be saved. Ephesians 4.32 shows this call to kindness is a response to God's kindness to us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So our kindness may be simple, may be more complex. It might be as simple as opening a door or or learning a person's name or, or providing a meal or making a visit or helping somebody learn English or babysitting for a single mom. A third quality of love is that it does not envy See, envy notices what people have, and it thinks, well, if only I had that, then I would be happy. Envy says, it's not fair that they have that, and I don't. It could be about money. It could be about houses. It could be about children or marriage or success, accomplishments or health even. Envy sees the joy of another person, but it resents it. But see, love remembers that God is distributed to each person according to his own sovereign will. Our gifts are from God, our wealth is from God, our background is from God. And why should I be envious of another person for what God has given to them? Why would I want them not to have what God has given to them? Instead, my call is to be joyful and thankful for the things that God has given me, and then to use those things for his glory. The fourth quality of love is that it does not boast. We boast when we, when we need the good of opinion of other people to make us feel happy. See, boasting is an attempt to build ourselves up, to build ourselves even better than others. When we have the love of God, we should already be full. We don't need to boast in order to, to find acceptance or to feel acceptable. Some of the boasting in Corinth was making others feel less important because they didn't have certain gifts, because they weren't of certain groups. 
That was what needed to stop. If we're insecure, really, there are two ways that we can help ourselves feel secure, right? I mean, one thing is to beat other people down so that we're equal with everyone, and so we don't feel like there's a difference. And the other one is to rest ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ and to find our hope in him and let him be our foundation. And which one do you think that God wants? I mean, it's clearly to find our identity in Jesus Christ and not in our own self-righteousness. The fifth quality that he gives here is that it is not arrogant. Some older translations say that it's not puffed up. You know, love builds up, but, but arrogance is, is puffy. It blows things down like this big bad wolf taking down the, these, these houses. But arrogance is that finish line. Arrogance is thinking that I know what is best. But, but love has a humility. Love asks questions. Love seeks to understand. Love seeks to respect others. He goes on in moving from arrogance and into verse 5 and to say that love is also not rude. It doesn't force itself on others. Love is careful uh, about what we say and what we do. And it doesn't justify bad behavior uh, based on uh, the part of the country we grow up in. It doesn't base bad behavior on our past suffering or backgrounds. I mean, rude is rude, and no matter how we look at it. Some people have said manners are love in trifles. I mean, love, manners are love in little things, right? The little things we do can show love towards other people. And that way, uh, manners are, are um, actions of love. Um, all of them, and, and as the world loses its manners, what does it lose? It loses the smallest currency of love. The loss of manners makes the world a less loving place. So it's good to learn good manners. It's not just your mom who says that, but really, God says that. Don't be rude. Mind your manners. Something God encourages us to do. So moms, you can pay me later for that advice. The seventh quality of love is that it does not insist on its own way. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were filing lawsuits against one another. They were insisting that they worship all in tongues. And, but love realizes that, we, that my way is not always best for you. Uh, instead, we want to see how we can both thrive and to do well. In love, we might give up our own rights. We might give up our own way for somebody else or for the body of Christ. The eighth quality of love is it's not irritable. It's not cantankerous. It doesn't fly into fits of rage or, or provoke others with irritability. When we're irritable, we push people away because they're a problem for us. Small things bother us. Have you ever been grumpy in the morning? Have you ever been grumpy with your kids and irritable towards them? You know, oftentimes it has more to do uh, with the value we put on our own time or on ourselves than the good or the value of the others that are around us. Love is not irritable. The ninth quality of love is it's not resentful. It doesn't keep a, a score of sins. It doesn't keep a record book on evil. But what happens when we become resentful is that we keep looking back at the fences that people have made against us, ways that people failed us, ways that people have hurt us, ways that people have denied us. Now, sometimes the perceived problem um, is, is worse than the things that actually happen, but um, and, and so sometimes we have to realize we're being resentful over things that really just don't matter. And it's causing problems inside of our relationships. And other times we realize that other people have hurt us deeply. And, and there's a call of, of deep forgiveness that's there. Forgiveness is the, the cure to our resentfulness. That's why Jesus commanded to forgive sins 77 times in Matthew chapter 18, 21 and 22. Forgiving things a multitude of times, lest resentfulness grow inside of our hearts. 
Some people have said that, that bitterness is the, is the poison we drink to hurt someone else. And we'll remember that, that call to forgive. I've grown resentment, which we can never love if we're resentful of another person. Verse 6, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 6 goes on with a couple more. It says, uh, with the 10th quality, is that a love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. A love is grounded in the word of God. Love is grounded in the law of God. In fact, the law of God is the perfect representation of love. It comes from him. And so true love does not rejoice when another person sins, does not rejoice when another person walks outside of God's sovereign will. In fact, it grieves that. It grieves in, I mean, grief is a form of love when we grieve over the, the, the sorrow that people are choosing for themselves. That's why, you know, as believers, we cannot rejoice when people choose lifestyles um, that the Bible says are sinful. Even if a person says that it, it makes them happy, but we continue to grieve because we know that the, the wages of the sin is death. And we know the consequences of those things. Um, oftentimes, in, inside, in, in the temporal time, in this worldly time, but also in the judgment that is to come. You know, we can't rejoice in those things that God says is sinful. But on the other side, the 11th quality is that love rejoices with the truth. First John 3, 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Luke 5, 15, 7 says the angels rejoice in, in heaven over the repentance of one sinner. And so we're the people who rejoice in what is true and beautiful and right and is good. We rejoice in truth partly because it, it encourages more truth. That's why we want to be talking about true and beautiful things. Sadly, our world rejoices in what is dirty and pornographic, crude and false. Much of the media is built up on on bad news, even false news. And then what do we do? We keep talking about it. Instead, we should be the ones who celebrate and talk about what what is good, what God has done that is good inside the world. Philippians 4, 8 says, we're to meditate on things that are true and beautiful and good. So the final four qualities are in chapter 13, verse 7. We see the first of all that love bears all things. It's willing to carry things for others, for their good. What can I take on behalf of this person, make their life better? A love also believes all things. It believes the best in people, and it believes the best for people. It believes in and for the joy of others, even when they don't believe in themselves, even when they don't believe in the Lord, even when they don't believe for themselves, the, the, the possibilities of hope that's before them. Also, in believing all things, is that we give people the benefit of the doubt. It is so critical in our world today, as divided as we are, is that we uh, give people the benefit of the doubt and, and attempt as much as we are able to, to think the best of each other. You know, the world will encourage us to think the worst of each other. It comes of political issues, race issues, social issues. Uh, you know, the propensity of the sinful heart is to, is to put the worst face on other people. While we're not called to be naive, you know, until we have evidence to the contrary, we should refrain from speaking about others in the worst way, about assuming motives, especially within the body of Christ, especially in our marriages, in our relationships. Fourteenth quality, then, is that love hopes all things. It doesn't look back. It looks forward to the hope that is in there, and he continues to move that way, encouraging others in that direction as well. And then this final fifteenth quality is that love endures all things. It, care, it endures until the end. It won't give up until it crosses that finish line in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's quite a list. 
And there are qualities that we fail to demonstrate as we should. And you may have felt that as we're kind of working through that, especially the irritable one. I thought, well, you know, you know, you know have, have we felt irritable over somebody or something recently? We've not been loving as we should. We're reminded as we, as we look towards this list is that there is one who perfectly fulfilled this list, and, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know, he loved his father truly and rightly, and he has loved his people truly and rightly, as it is described here. And that's why we need to remember um, that love ultimately is found in a person. There's a book called Love Walked Among Us. First John 4, 8 says that God is love. These qualities are so valuable. They're, they're, they're part of God himself. They're, they're what Jesus demonstrated in his life in this, in this world. And we know that, that we find the possibility to enter into that kind of love as we abide in him, as we're connected to him by faith, because it flows through him into us and then out of us into the world. So love is this path, and following the Lord Jesus Christ is a pattern of life. It's things that we do as we're, it's found in Jesus. As we walk in him, as we abide in him, we'll find these to be more and more a part of our lives. We should see them growing parts of our lives joyfully. All right, so we've seen the indispensability of love, the qualities of love. Well, talking about its value, he also talks about the future of love. The value of it is seen in his future. Love isn't something that's going to end, but it goes on forever and ever. We even see that heaven is a place of love. First uh, Corinthians 13.8 says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. You know, this gift of prophecy, this gift of tongues was, was given to the church so the church could know God better. God was revealing to himself the gospel message of salvation and love through these gifts. But eventually, he wasn't going to need to use them anymore. He was going to give us the scriptures. And one day we'll see him face to face. And things are going to pass away. There's things that we're not going to need. They're, they're temporary measures. Verses 9 and 10 Show us that what we have now is merely a sampling of what's to come. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So as these gifts would come to them, they would, they would declare these prophetic utterances which would come from God or, 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 or to speak in tongues. But his message to them is those are just partial. There's going to come a fullness which will come, and those things are going to be gone. There's going to be something more glorious, something more wonderful than this partial revelation. They were hearing of the forgiveness of God. They were hearing of what Jesus Christ had done. But what will it be to actually taste of that forgiveness, to be accepted by God at that great judgment throne, judgment which is to come, and, and for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. How will it be to hear when God says, your sins are paid for by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, there are things we say and we talk about we look forward to when that partial will pass away and the fullness will be revealed. Partly because right now we live in the impartial. There are things that are lacking. We have joy. We also struggle with sin. We live in a world that has evil and suffering in it, and we want relief from it. The Word of God has comforted us. The Scriptures help us. There's something we long for, and this passage tells us that one day that perfection will come. We're not going to fight it in the world. We're not going to find it in a perfect nation, perfect justice system. We're not going to find perfect love in this world. We want what is good, and we work for what is good, but we cannot fall for false promises of a perfect utopia in this lifetime. 
that perfection of glory is one that is in the future. As we look at verse 12, we see the difference between life now and the perfection that's to come. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So right now, we, it's called a dim mirror. It's like squinting in the fog to look ahead what's, 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 what's coming up or, or peering through a clouded lens. What? Actually, vision just came to me. Speaking through steamed up glasses, right? Because you're wearing your mask. You know, um, you know there's, there's a dimness as we look ahead. But one day the weather shall be clear and the, and the sun shall shine and we'll know the full knowledge of God and to be fully known by him as I have been fully known, he says. So love has a future. It's a part of God. It's going to last forever. Love is the goal, and as, you, as, as we move towards that goal, we, we grow up. Look at verse 11. It shows that growing up means that we move from these emotions and these experiences to, one, to faith that's grounded in the, in the promises of God and manifests itself in love. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Children tend to be self-centered. Children tend to be geared more on emotion. Uh, children tend to be built towards excitement. But maturity means we're able to look at the lives of others. Maturity means that we're able to set aside our own needs at times and to care for them. Maturity is moving from experience to love and the choice of love. Love is a choice. As we look at the verses in 4 through 7, uh, we're reminded these are things we choose to do or choose not to do. And too often we're just waiting for love to happen, waiting for that emotion to come in. We even have songs about waiting for love, but we're to make love happen. Where does that start? It starts with the desire to please God. Love begins with the desire to please God and is responsive to the love of God. Verse, verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Spiritual gifts may come and go, but these three won't disappear. Our emotions may come and go, but faith, hope, and love, those things abide forever. They're grounded in God's nature. They're, 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 they're focused on, in faith upon what, who God is and what he has done. And love is the highest because it's a reflection of who he is. Love begins with the desire to please God because he's first loved us. I mean, do you know, believer, that God has loved you with an everlasting love, that he's loved you with a love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that is unenvious or boastful, one that rejoices in truth, does not rejoice in any wrongdoing. I mean, do you know that God loves you with a love that seeks your eternal joy in Jesus Christ? I mean, you, you will only be able to love as God wants you to, if you know the love that God has for you. You'll only be able to love the way that God wants you to if you have the love that God has for you. And so how is it that we grow in this greatest of all virtues? It's not by trying harder, but it's by basking in God's love. Isn't that the way that we first love, learn love inside this world? It's, it's through a loving father and a mother in our lives. I mean, that is God's design for the way that we learn love. And we know it doesn't always happen rightly, uh, but that is God's design, and, and that is the way that he is meant for it to be learned. It's the, the, the joys of motherhood and fatherhood. 
and the glory, the wonder of it. And so as we see from the beginning, we learn by experience. We're to learn from the, the nurturing love of, of, of a mother. That's why when I ask young couples in premarital counseling, you know, who's the most loving person that you know? And, and you know, almost all the time they say, my mom. Dad's, oftentimes you're a close second, but it's, it's always mom. They know that nurturing, caring love. And the same way, I mean, if you want to know the love that God wants you to show for others, you need to abide in his love that he has for you. I mean, these qualities of love come from God uh, because they are in God. They're in God himself. They're gifts to us. They come from knowing him. He even chose to love you. He chose to save you. It's, it's all based on his choice, never upon your deserving. And so if you're a Christian, if you're going to love, you need to hear God's word, to meditate on it, to receive it by faith, and to let that message, that love, to change you as you imitate it. If you're not a Christian, it's here. You know, you won't be able to love the way that God calls you, the way that God commends you. And the first step is to receive this gift of love that he's offered the world. The Bible said that God so loves the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God has loved the world to provide a way of forgiveness and joy and hope to you if only you would receive the Lord Jesus. We need to repent of our sin. We repent of our wrongdoing and look to God by faith. But when we do, we know he forgives our sins. God is, Jesus Christ has died to take away condemnation, to take away guilt, to take away that shame. And he came to give eternal, joyful, and abundant life for you. Jesus Christ has died for his people to give them life. Would you believe in him and know that for yourself? Let today be a day of salvation when you look towards God's love. So for all of us, let's consider the love of God. Let's, let's, Let's believe in that gospel which reveals his love. Let's be filled with his love. And then let us imitate that as we love one another in the body of Christ, inside of our family, our neighbors, the person across the world who doesn't know Jesus. Let's love them with this love that God has given to us. The greatest of these is love. It's a love that never fails. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, No one has loved us in such a perfect way as you have loved us. God, you've called us to love, and and we've seen our failures with it. We've seen our selfishness in these things. But, Father, that that our sin hasn't stopped your love. And, Father, it's changing us. It's transforming us. It's helping us to be more loving as you've called us to be. And I rejoice and I give thanks for that, God, for me and for your people. And I see the, 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 the acts of love inside of marriages, inside of community, um, inside the workplace and families. God, I, I see that and I rejoice in it. You, God, are making us into a more loving people. And so, Father, we pray that as we... Uh, see your love. Father, we'd be able to receive the forgiveness that's in it. We'd be able to receive the power and life in it. And that, God, you would use that, Father, to equip us to continue to grow for the loving actions that you call us to. We ask you, God, for these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's close by singing together, standing and singing, though I may speak with